to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Welcome back to Everyday Theology. I have the pleasure of having uh, a, a person who I would say we actually really haven't gotten to to know each other very well, but we see each other at Society for Pentecostal Studies quite often. Um, but that would be Dr. Dale Coulter. Uh, brilliant, brilliant. Anytime someone has received their their DPhil from the University of Oxford, I am going to be a little. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I'm going to feel a little anxious talking to someone with a DPhil from Oxford, right? Because above my class for sure. Um, but he is also, he is a professor at Pentecostal Theological Seminary. Uh, he was before that, I believe, at Regent, if I'm correct, right? Yes. Uh, so thanks for thanks for being here. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on, Aaron. I really, I've listened to the podcast before, and it's just nice to be here and, and have a conversation with you. Well, I'm, I'm stoked. For our listeners, if you wouldn't mind giving yourself a bit of an introduction, who are you and... Um, anything about you that you would like to share? Sure. Well, um, I grew up in the Pentecostal movement, so um, not everyone knows that. Uh, and on my mother's side, it goes back all the way to the beginning of the movement. Wow. Uh, particularly in the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, which is where I have my ordination. Um, so I am an ordained minister, or we call them ordained bishops. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, that's what brought me back to Pentecostal Theological Seminary because the Church of God's the sponsoring denomination. Yeah. Um, let's see. You know, um, in terms of my work, it's uh, I do historical theology, um, but uh, I was a medievalist by training. So, for example, I've got a book coming out this month or early next month. I'm not sure exactly uh, which is the final volume of a ten volume set on the Abbey of St. Victor. Oh, wow. That is a series of English translations. Um, many of them first time translated into English. Uh, I co-edited the first volume with a friend of mine, Boyd Kuhlman at Boston College. And now I'm co-editing this volume, which is not the 10th volume. It didn't come out. Right. Uh, the volume sequences weren't chronologically sequenced. Um mm. So uh, this is the fifth volume, but I, I co-edited that uh, with a couple of colleagues, Franz von Leer at Calvin and uh, a retired colleague um, who was uh, retired from Oberlin in Ohio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, and uh, his name is uh, Grover Zinn. Mm-hmm. Had a brief lapse there. <laughs> <laughs> had, to, had to dig deep for that one. Um so, you know, one side of my uh, bit is medieval. Then I do the Pentecostal scholarship thing. Um, and uh, Amos Young and I are co-writing a book on the Holy Spirit and higher education, which oh, wow. Press is yeah. published, and that'll be out next year. Um, it's the manuscripts done. I'm just making some final revisions before we hand it over. Um, and so that's kind of part of the Pentecostal thing um, yeah. that I do. And I do a little kind of history in Pentecostalism. So, uh you know, what I'm doing here uh, at Pentecostal Theological Seminary is I teach history, but I teach Wesleyan Holiness Pentecostal history. And then 
you know, uh, last year I did a presentation on jazz and blues and early Pentecostals. And so, huh. yeah. Um, so that's kind of the, if you want to think about my um, scholarship, it's usually one of three directions, the medieval direction, um, the Pentecostal history or holiness history direction and the theology direction. Yeah. Um, Which is the direction we're going to go down today. But uh, you know, I, it's funny, I, you saying about bishop being a bishop in the Church of God, I always, it's kind of a weird thing to say that I forget, is that I'm kind of a prodigal son. I don't know if I'll ever return. We'll just start there. But my dad's actually also a bishop in the Church of God. Really? Okay. Uh, yeah, in Florida. So uh, it's just, it's just it, I still, there's still a soft spot in my heart for the Church of God, even if I've moved on and, and gone a different direction. But, um, but that, that direction of what we're going to talk about today... Uh, is one that I'm really excited about, one that I think for a lot of people, the term is laden with problems or mm. or laden with a lot of misconceptions. In fact, I think it was a, a book by Constantine Campbell uh, that he argues something against the word mysticism because it's so laden with so much uh, extra thought and extra kind of weight that it's just not even, he almost argues that it's not even worth using anymore. And I, I push back. I'm like, no, I, of course I push back a lot of that text, but, right, sure. um, uh, but that word is, is kind of a unique word. And so, uh, Dale, you know, one of my things that I'm really curious about is better understanding mysticism. And so I'm posing this question to you at, for our listeners, just as much as it is for me mm. and asking even the basic question of what is mysticism and should we as Christians or I think Christian theology be thinking about what this is and working in this area. Great. That's a, that's a great opener. Well, the, the short answer to the second question about should we is yes, we should. <laughs> right. <laughs> I spent too you don't, much you time. don't have to convince me, but yeah, there might be some others you have writing. to convince. <laughs> <laughs> to say no on that one. <laughs> um, we definitely should, I think. And in fact, um, the mystical streams within Christianity, I mean, Pentecostalism, uh, you know, we were talking before um, uh, in, the, in, the, in the kind of time together before the recording and for the podcast about uh, Daniel Costello's good friend, his book, Pentecostalism is a Form of Christian Mysticism. I agree completely with Daniel. Hmm. I think it definitely is. And I think that's the best way of understanding it. It is a spiritual tradition and uh, we can't understand it um, apart from that context. Yeah. Um, so I do think it has a lot of connections to the larger Christian mystical streams. Um, and if you, if I were to simplify them, um, I would simply say this, look, at the heart of Christian mysticism is the charismatic experience of the faith. Christian mystics were charismatics hmm. uh, of their day. And um, some of them wanted to systematize it because of the way in which they saw the spiritual disciplines, especially meditation, prayer, study, those sorts of things, fasting, um, flowing into vision or what they, you know, you could call it contemplative vision. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, coming from the Greek term theoria, um, from which we get theory or theoretical, but mm -hmm. at its base is this vision um, of God. So, the idea, uh, the charismatic life in terms of visions, revelations, that sort of thing, the prophetic, that's all bound up in what the tradition thinks of as mysticism. And here's the reason why. Um, 
if you look at the notion of ecstasy, which is really key to mysticism, yeah, that you're caught up into the presence of God, and having been caught up into the presence of God, you are experiencing union with God, and that union has vision with it, some sort of vision. Now, you know, Christian mystics differed on how to think about that vision, and they, they theologized differently. There's the kind of Augustinian, more light mysticism, which you'd find in the Victorines or in Bonaventure or somebody like that, where when you're caught up in the union with God in this ecstatic embrace, um, it opens up a new vista, a new horizon. You, hmm. you see more broadly. Um, and then you have uh, Dionysian streams, right, where you can see Gregory of Nyssa and then flowing into Dionysius the Areopagite or the pseudo-Dionysian writings, where when you get, you're like Moses and you get to the top, but when you get to the top, you step into the cloud and it's a kind of, to borrow a title of an English mystical treatise, a cloud of unknowing where you hmm. unlearn yeah. everything because you recognize God as utterly transcendent. His, his going into darkness, right? Gregory's, that's right. Yeah. It's not light, it's darkness. And um, you learn about God, but it's an affective learning. It's a yeah. it's insight through emotion, through love. Um, but central to that is the notion of ecstasy. And what um, folks don't always realize is that when early Christians thought about Old Testament prophets or Paul or Peter and Acts, they instinctively went to the notion of ecstasy. This is not only because Philo of Alexandria, a Jewish writer in the late first century BC, um, uh, moving into the first century AD or CE, BCE, however you want to do that, describe it, he, he uses these terms. Um, hmm. So that comes into Christian discourse. And not only that, but Luke, when Luke describes Peter's vision of the uh, animals, the unclean animals that come down, he uses the term ecstasy, ecstasis huh. yeah. in the Greek. Right. Um, so that comes into Christian discourse, and it's deeply associated with prophecy, with vision, with revelation. And um, this is comes to the center of the mystical life. So the mystical life is always the combination of what I what you could call and this would be familiar to some of your readers, I think, purity and power, or mm -hmm. holiness, sanctity yep. on the one hand, and charismatic revelation, vision, prophecy on the other hand. Those are always linked. So you've got your spiritual disciplines, meditation, fasting, all of that comprising holiness, and you've got contemplative vision, the aurea, on the side of um, the charismatic right. revelation. I mean, so, right. so that's really, when you think about Christian mysticism, that's the way I think we need to be thinking about it. Yeah. Now, that, that word ecstasy, it, it, it's, it's pretty late in itself, right? Sure. And uh, so maybe we can unpack that, because I'm thinking, you know, for anyone who is listening, who does identify or has come from Pentecostal streams, when they hear that word, it's not a scary word, right? Uh, at least for most of us, right? There's been... A, ecstatic expressions, right? I mean, oftentimes it really came out of worship, but other experiences as well, speaking in tongues and the like, the charismatic, right? That these sure. expressions, 
But maybe if you can unpack the word ecstasy a bit, because it, it, it's like I said, it's also got that. It's also got ecstasy as a drug, right? Like it's also got these kind of like other sure. other uh, ways of thinking about it. So when you say ecstasy in the mystic tradition, just explain that a bit more for us. Yeah. So um, the basic meaning of the term means to stand outside of hmm. ecstasis, right? And uh, so the prefix means out of and then stasis is is about standing so it's to it's to stand outside of something and to stand outside of yourself so to be caught up in a vision of something is to have is to in some way stand outside of yourself now of course precisely how that's where you get into debates even in the christian right. stream but i i usually when i talk to students about it i can say that you know we've all had what you could call mundane or everyday experiences of ecstasy. Um, and you can see sometimes movies catching it. So for example, if you've ever been in a situation where you've suddenly, you're walking down the street and suddenly you see something that is unusual and you're caught up in that moment and you everything kind of in a moment slows down as you focus or fixate on whatever you're seeing. Maybe it's a car right. crash, maybe it's someone dressed up in an unusual way. Maybe it's a very good looking person, you know, um, but you're caught up uh, and you can see that in movies for, and then, you know, one of the good examples of this is um, if you've ever watched the King Kong movie, mm -hmm. there are many now, the first time in the movie that a human being lays eyes on this massive ape is, is portrayed as this moment of ecstasy as this person is caught up in the vision of this, huh. you know, massive gorilla, there's two things that happen. It's kind of shock and awe. Mm -hmm. um, so there's this awe dimension, but there's also this um, amazement and kind of um, wonder. So it's shock, awe, and wonder, amazement, which are yeah. really the two sides of ecstasy. You're caught up into the presence of something and so there's an awe dimension to it, which usually has a sense of anxiety or fear about it. Um, but there's also a kind of wonder or amazement. Right, right. And that's the beauty sort of part. So the phenomenon of ecstasy at its base is this idea of being caught up into something. And that being caught up means that you're standing outside of yourself. Now, what does that mean to stand outside of yourself? It means to lose self-awareness hmm. at its hmm. most basic sense. So yeah. again, when you see, going back to the movie, to the King Kong movies, um, when the person sees the ape for the first time, there's a loss of self-awareness. The person just freezes and stares. Right. And then you, then they have to kind of shake the person, come on. You know, wake up, we've got to go, you know, it's so that's the idea that in in prophecy, in revelation, in vision, there's a moment where you're caught up into another world, as it were. And that being caught up prompts you to lose self-awareness. You, you forget about the other things outside of you, right? You forget about the external world. And you even can forget about yourself. You're not even aware. You're kind of just so fixated on whatever you're seeing, whatever right. this vision is, that that you're you're fundamentally unaware. And you know, um, 
there are different terms that get at this, but one of the most prominent terms that comes into the West, and Augustine uses it, and uh, Hugh and Richard St. Victor use it, and it's alienatio, or, um, uh, yeah, that's the noun, and there are various verbs for it. Um, now, you can translate that, you can transliterate it as alienation, hmm. but another way of translating it is disengagement, um, and it usually is accompanied with the word for mind. So a, an alienation of the mind, a disengagement huh, of the mind. Right, right. But you could also translate it because interestingly enough, that same word is used in texts that deal with psychological breaks. Yeah, yeah. So a rupture of the mind. So if, if when we talk about people who have mental disabilities or challenges, they can have a, a break with reality, a psychological break. Right. Um, that term can describe that, but it can also describe the break that happens in ecstasy, where the loss of awareness of the world, the loss of awareness of yourself is a kind of break with reality. It's not a psychological break where you cease to think of the world in the way it really is. It's a temporary suspension right. of awareness right. as you're caught up in something. Yeah, I think... Maybe if I can pause you right there, because, you know, it's a question I was going to bring up when we talk about ecstasy, we talk about charismatic, we talk, you know, there's a psychological element that, you know, we need probably need a psychologist to, uh, you know, someone, I know Fuller's got a great program on psychology and theology, right? Like, but for Pentecostals, that's always been a kind of appointed uh, attack, right? Like, almost that idea of the charismatic are psychological breaks, right? Like real breaks of, of reality uh, in, in non-helpful or healthy ways. So how does, how does kind of, maybe we can start before we even talk about the Pentecostals, go back and talk about the, some of the mystics, the original mystics, mm. right? How did they describe this reality before the science of psychology even becomes a thing are there helpful ways of talking about it that can help differentiate between those kinds of breaks that they talked about? Well, I mean, first thing I'll say is they all, because of the vocabulary, once you get into the original vocabulary in the original language and you start to see how these terms are being used, you recognize that number one, they all understand that there's a confluence between the psychological and the spiritual and that you can't, you can't do a hard and fast break so what you can talk about are natural ways of thinking about things and supernatural ways of thinking about things. Hmm. But you have right. to think about them on a continuum. So there's this flow between one or the other. Now, within that continuum, um, where the psychological merges into the, the supernatural, as it were, or the spiritual, we might say, within that continuum, they used a variety of words to get at how how this thing unfolds um, and you get by the 12th century um, uh, an attempt to try and classify and codify the language. Mm, yeah. So you get from Jerome and Augustine um, alienatio, that word I just mentioned, you get from uh, Gregory the great um, dilatatio from which we get huh. the English word dilation you know, when your eyes dilate, yeah. I mean, we both wear right. glasses, you know, you can go in and get those eye drops. And you oh gosh, them. the worst. Yes. 
but the whole, but another way of, of translating that is expansion. So mm-hmm. ecstasy is not simply a disengagement of the mind. It's an expansion of the mind to contain many things at once. And the whole idea behind that is the, this moment of ecstasy, especially in the Augustinian stream, is a moment of expansive vision that is a um, proleptic kind of sight in anticipation of the beatific vision. Yeah. And the beatific vision itself is actually, in human form, God's eternal now. Hmm. So the idea that God exists in, 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 in eternity so that everything is simultaneously present to God. God's not stretched out over time so that the, the life of God is not a history. God simultaneously possesses his life all at once. So he simultaneously sees everything at once in one blinding vision. That's the idea behind yeah. this notion of eternity. So the beatific vision is our beholding things at once. Ecstasy is a proleptic realization where suddenly you enter this state where you see a multitude of things simultaneously. Hmm. It's sort of like this, you know, and this is where the last term that gets used is sublevatio. It means an elevation of the mind. So you've got disengagement, you've got expansion, and you've got elevation. And the reason you have elevation is elevation and expansion kind of go hand in hand because you know, you can think about the way in which when you take off in a jet, you go up in a tower, you go up high, you see many things at once. Yeah. It's this broad landscape, right? To come back to eternal now, the way I generally explain that with students uh, coming from Boethius in the consolation is, well, you got to think about a parade from two different perspectives. There's the on the street perspective where the parade has a past, present, and a future. Right. And then there's the Goodyear Blimp perspective where you see the parade all at once. Right. From start to finish. It, it's all part of your etern- your present reality. So to be elevated up is to sort of suddenly have this sort of Goodyear Blimp perspective, which is really God's perspective. Yeah. And when they, when they look at the book of Revelation, for example, they see that suddenly the, the John the seer has seized things all at once. Hmm. Yeah. Now, right. you know, we can talk about what that means, but let me just stop there in case you want to say anything. I know I've talked a bit <laughs> um, at this point. What I do want to say is, see, as in talking to someone with a DPhil from Oxford is always going to... There are so many words being thrown out that I'm like, I, I've got to remember all these, and I know I'm not. So, <laughs> um, no, what I, but what I do love, and maybe kind of the point, and, and moving this towards the way in which maybe Costello talks about Pentecostals as a Christian mystic tradition, also really enjoy Costello and his, his, his pneumatological reality of saying that whatever we call the supernatural is actually the most natural. We've kind of flipped the mm. script, right? But uh, what I love about it is, and maybe what what resonates so deeply with me and mysticism is that there is this continual process of trying to put language to something that is beyond language and and you know I'll say this and you respond however you you feel but you know what the problem isn't when we try to put language to it to me, the problem is when we try to put language to it and we say, we've we figured it out. This is the language to describe that reality and there and now we're done. 
Sure, yes. I mean, so there, you know, what we're doing is we're we're recognizing the metaphorical or analogical status of language. And thus we have to to describe it, come at it from a variety of different perspectives. Um, uh, and the whole point is every one of these perspectives is saying it's sort of like this. So, <laughs> right. you know, um, and, and they're getting at different features or different facets of what is in fact a complex spiritual experience of being caught up into the presence of God and, yeah. and having your affection shaped in that moment of encounter but having the affection shape suddenly will open up the a new vista, a new horizon, so that your spiritual eyes, as it were, are opened. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yes, you're, they're trying to, um, mystics are trying to do two things in their writings. One, they're trying to, de to describe their own experiences. Two, they're trying to classify, systematize um, these experiences. But here's the thing. This goes back to the point that you were just making a few moments ago. This is why symbols become extremely important. Yeah, right. Um, because symbols are able to contain and convey, and those are both important, contain and convey um, the content in a, you know, roundabout way um right tell the truth but tell it slant um, hmm. um uh, to borrow from emily dickinson uh on that so uh that's the way these symbols um are designed to function so within the abbey of saint victor for example and it's not just them within the mystical stream this is why when you meditate you should use words and images um hmm. and in fact yeah. The higher form of prayer is wordless prayer. You begin with prayers that where you're uttering words, you know, you're praying, but you move into a speechless prayer. Hmm. But speechless prayer is not imageless prayer, and it's not wordless prayer. It's nonverbal hmm. prayer. Yeah. And I think that's the that's the key. And this That's is the pray without ceasing reality that we yes right and so the way you do that is you 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 find something to focus on because part of ecstasy is actually focusing you um and the experience itself think about going back to king kong right seeing the gorilla has a way of focusing the mind <laughs> yeah, right. quite quickly right <laughs> um and that's what happens as we're caught up in the presence of God. Suddenly the mind sharpens, focus. They'll even use the language of the sharp point of the mind because they're trying to, to get into hmm. this way in which there's a focusing that's happening in the moment. But we can, we can through meditation, sharpen our minds right. in, by focusing on an image in prayer or a set of words. This is the re this is the wonderful thing about written out prayers that are repeated over and over. They have a way of focusing, hmm, honing, yeah. right? So you can you can use an image like Hugh of Saint Victor uses the Ark of Noah. Huh. You can yeah. um, Richard of Saint Victor uses the Ark of the Covenant, um, and they really want to they use the image to expand the memory. Yeah. So the image is not only focuses you, 
if you go into the image and enter it into a detailed way, you can suddenly enter into it and it becomes a house of memory. It becomes a, a, a mnemonic device, a way yeah. of remembering things. Right. Um, because you associate certain concepts with certain parts of the art. The gold means this. The, the ah, yeah. wood mm -hmm. means that. Right. You know, that sort of thing. So whether it's an interior castle with Teresa, whether it's a bridge with Catherine of Siena, whether it's an ark, the Noah's Ark, Ark of the Covenant, whether it is um, the crucified Christ, um, like with Bonaventure, um, or Francis, it's always about an image focusing. Um, yeah. And that allows us to contain things, okay, and to convey. The image conveys content and contains content. Yeah. I, you know, kind of in our, in our conversation and talking about this, this need for language to help sharpen the mind, this need for language to help us kind of contemplate on something ineffable, uh, what can get lost, at least in the way that I think about it, it can get lost in how that's embodied, mm. right? The more we kind of like use this language to help us describe a reality, oftentimes can actually take us away from the embodied experience, right? Because we're trying to describe, we're trying to, and, and not that those things have to happen every time in that same way, but it can happen, right? This is where for me, I think maybe we can make that turn to Pentecostalism, where even if I'm not in a Pentecostal tradition any longer, where Pentecostalism has such a strength in this ecstatic and charismatic is that it resists disembodying these concepts. Right. It, it, might, it might at risk, it might have risk of, of not contemplating them enough and, and trying to describe them well enough, but it doesn't necessarily have at risk not embodying them, right? And and with all of your work in Pentecostal history, how do you kind of like think about that kind of mystic turn within Pentecostals and what that so, means? Um, I'd say there are a couple of things that come into my mind. Well, maybe more than two, but let me just begin with a couple of them. Um, the first is we have to think about embodiment on multiple levels, multiple mm. layers of embodiment. Yeah. It's it's the body of Christ as the community of the faith. Right, right. So, so within Pentecostal worship, it's it's communally driven worship. Um, mm -hmm. I remember the first time I went to camp meeting and um, as a teenager, after I had finally, after multiple trips to the altar, lots of emotional catharsis, I I had finally sort of said, okay, God, I, I'm, I'm yours. And after that, I started trying to, you know, act on that commitment. So I remember going to camp meeting for the first time and walking into that place and suddenly seeing thousand or so people singing these songs. Some of them are dancing. Yeah. Some of them are, you know, their hands are waving. Um, it's this entire movement of worship. And then just being caught up in that movement I mean, it was like the power of God hit me, hmm. but it did so in the context of the body. Right. Right. Within the medieval context, it is, this is why you get religious life and, and mystical life going together because it's in the context of the, of the communal con it's in the communal context of the religious order that this emerges. 
sacramental yeah. worship, all of that, right? So that's the first level of, embo- of embodiment, I'd say. This is always communal. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, But the second level of embodiment is it is also um, our own full participation, body and soul. So our bodies participate through the body of Christ. Um, and that bodily participation is not simply tongue speech. Of course, Pentecostals will automatically think about right. tongue speech as right. a static utterance. Um, for better where, or for worse. Yeah, where right. our minds are disengaged while we're caught up bodily, as well as af- in terms of affect, in terms of our emotions and desires. We're, we're caught up simultaneously, both of those. But it's also dancing, um, hmm. right? Um, the you know the, the interesting thing to me is that you know Pentecostals never ruled out dance. What they did was they said, let's bring what's happening in the dance house into the church, <laughs> right? Sanctify it, right? Can't and, go to a dance, but if the dance happens here, right? And we're good. We're good. <laughs> um, and that the same thing was is with music when you think about this. And there's a close correspondence, yeah. I would say, between the dance and what happens in worship and the music. Um, right. Um, so there's that embodiment that's going on there, which is why early Pentecostals were contributing to blues, jazz. Um, I found examples of early Pentecostal juke bands. Well, the huh. juke band plays in a juke joint. Yeah. Those instruments are brought into the church house in early Pentecostalism, um, where they're not brought into Methodist or Baptist worship. They're brought mm. into the Pentecostal church. Yeah. Um, and because it's all about embodiment. And then, um, so if I were to connect those two, the personal embodiment with the communal embodiment, the place of connection for Pentecostals is the altar where those two realities meet one another. Yeah. As people come forward and are met and meet others. And this is where I'd say we can talk about a third kind of embodiment which is not simply the physicality of our bodies, but the ethnicity, the gender, the, yeah. these, these dimensions of embodiment occur at that moment of intersection between the communal body and the personal body, where we meet one another in those spaces of prayer around an altar and black and white and brown bodies and, and male and female bodies all come together with hands laid on in the sweat in the prayer, in the oil, in all of that, and ecstasy unfolds in that context. Mm, so I yeah. would say um, within Pentecostalism, the embodiment has multiple layers, at least three layers that I've talked about. I mean, that's the first thing that really comes to my mind when I want to, when I when I say that you know you need to think about uh, yeah. how how that how that unfolds. Um, the second thing I would say is that you find this even in, in, in the New Testament, right? Paul says, I know a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but he was caught up in the third heaven. There's a sense in which that notion of alienation, disengagement means you're not always fully aware. And, and <laughs> right. even scholars debate over some of the Old Testament prophets. Were some of these visions just mental or were some of them actually physical? It's very difficult to tell sometimes from the language of being caught up into heaven, whether that is, you know, being spatially 
taken somewhere, or it's just being mentally taken somewhere. Um, But there is a sense in which um, that mental ascent, right, that's at the heart of um, uh, the mystical stream, the mental. And then there's always the spill over into it. So the mental ascent occurs within our bodies. We're never separated from our bodies. It's always within our bodies. But sometimes in these, I'd say, extreme moments, our bodies are impacted. All right. So we've we've talked a lot about kind of embodiment. We've talked maybe in some kind of esoteric ways about mysticism and 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 some embodied ways and what that means. But I think sometimes in the conversations, again, what can be lost is what does this mean for us? And I think there might be some listeners who who this really resonates with, especially if they came from Pentecostal or charismatic or even some um, other contemplative traditions, right? Some liturgical traditions that have more contemplation uh, and engagement, maybe even in things like the Eucharist, right? And the kind of idea of the Eucharist. But for those, there might be some who go, okay, I don't, I don't really get this in terms of what is this, how is this different? What does this mean? So maybe if you can help kind of juxtapose how is kind of a mystic tradition different than maybe some American, I say American because we're both just in America, but Western traditions, uh, church traditions, and kind of the way that we engage with God via these mystic traditions or not. Well, let me um, make some connections to Pentecostalism, the holiness movement, and um, then I'll sh- then I'll talk about the ways that where there are differences. So the connections are this, at the core of Christian mysticism is the idea of salvation as a journey of becoming like God. Yeah. Right. And you're, and so it, the connection between that and the holiness and Pentecostal traditions is Wesley talks about a via salutis. Salvation is a way, it's a way of salvation. And right. it's a journey about being, being made holy, becoming like God, being holy in the way God is holy. Um, so there's a connection, at least in that respect, that salvation is this journey of becoming more like God. Within um, the mystical streams, uh, that journey is facilitated in two ways, sacramental life of the church, and then the spiritual disciplines, mm-hmm. what might say the personal religious life, that is the the flip side of the sacramental life for pentecostals there's what i most pentecostals are what i'd call sacramental light right (laughs) right you know right despite the fact that scholars like chris green and daniela augustine want to argue that there's more there than meets the eye maybe so but you really got to search for it um yeah uh we're uh pentecostalism is more revivalist so the spiritual discipline side can, can fit insofar as Pentecostals do think prayer is not simply something that you're doing on Sunday. Prayer is something you should be doing throughout the week, along with Bible study. There's a basic right. kind of approach to the spiritual life there, um, and that you're preparing yourself. You're praying, you're asking the Lord to open up things to you, that sort of thing. So holiness is the way in which we become more like God 
And that really prepares us for charism the charismatic. Um, at the core of Pentecostalism is this notion that you got to be sanctified before you can be spirit baptized. Hmm. Now, the way I, I would want to translate that idea is to say holiness is the predecessor of the charismatic. It flows into the charismatic. And that really is another connection with the mystical streams. The way they describe it is the life of penance prepares you right. um, for contemplative vision. Um, Pentecostals would say, well, sanctification prepares you for spirit baptism. Spirit baptism is that ecstatic moment of being caught up in the presence of God and speaking in ecstatic languages as you are caught up in the presence of God. Right. So um, if I were to talk about it practically speaking, I would say, number one, we have to recognize that there is a connection between the sanctus, between holiness or purity and power or the charismatic. Um, and that sanctifying grace flows into charismatic grace. And we can't reverse those. We've got to keep them in sequence, which means, and, and the way we need to think about this is, if you really want to see God, you got to become like God. The psalmist, in, in your light, we see light. Hmm. So we become like God. We participate in his holiness, which opens up charismatic revelation, charismatic vision. Right. Right. That sort of thing. And, and um, it's important, I think, maybe to say it that way, right, to participate in God's holiness rather than to try and manufacture that through parts of the personality. Well, right. That's, now, my, so, that's my Tillichian coming out, right? The, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the doxypraxypathy of life, right? The, the, what we believe or what we do or how we love. So the other thing I would say in relationship to that very pastorally is this is all about relationship, which means it's organic. It is um, uh, subject to all the um, realities of a relationship. In other words, you can't manipulate this. So what we have to stay away from, and this is one of the challenges within Pentecostalism, charismatic world we cannot mechanize it we cannot right. manipulate it we can't um turn it into a formula right um we have to allow this to unfold now of course we can talk about the spiritual disciplines as a kind of relationship advice if you want to get closer to god you become more like god just like if you want to get close to your spouse you need to, you know, you demonstrate your love in doing certain things and you grow together, right? So there is that relational dynamic that you can talk about things that you need to do in the context of relationship. But Pentecostal sometimes, especially in the charismatic side, we like to, we like our formulas. So right. we like to reduce these things to some sort of formula. And you can't reduce relationships to formulas without devaluing and destroying the relationships. Right. right. That is the same thing with God. So on the one hand, we want to talk about what the mystics are doing is saying, I have a passion to know God. And, and I want to be holy like God is holy. So there are certain things that I need to do. I need holiness is about training yourself for godliness. And the spiritual disciplines are all involved in that. And I'm confessing my sin regularly. And I'm trying to think about the ways in which, you know, I, I'm praying for the love of God to come to dominate my life more and more, to govern 
everything that I am. All of that is part of this relational fabric. So another way of thinking about contemplative vision is it's about entering the bridal chamber. Hmm. It's that consummation. So union with God, ecstatic union is a consummation. And early Pentecostals like um, Charles Mason, when he spoke in tongues, he called it the wedlock with Christ. Interesting. Yeah. Um, they use that bridal language, which mm. is deeply relational language. Right. So we're we're preparing ourselves to enter that bridal chamber, and tongues is about our entrance into it. So I would say we have to keep in mind the relational dynamic, that it's organic. It's subject to all the issues of relationship. So we can't mechanize it. We can't make it formulaic. We have to resist any tendencies to do that. So that if I recite a formula, if I have enough faith, as right. it were, right. that I can make these things happen as though we can somehow manipulate God. You can't. You're in right. relationship with God. What you can do is you can grow and deepen that relationship by becoming yeah. holier, more holy, like God is holy. Um, I mean, that's the other pastoral thing I would say. Now, here's the bit that's that's really different for Pentecostals that they don't um, think about. I've already talked about the sacramental dimension, but the other bit is the use of images, written out prayers, right? these sort of things, because at the heart of Pentecostalism is this notion that to be more spiritual is to be more spontaneous. Hmm. Um, and that really comes from the fact that Pentecostals are through and through what I would call non-conformist <laughs> right right and and i mean that not simply in today's terms i mean that historically right so if you were a conformist in in england in the 1600s it means you were church of england right um conformity was conforming to the official state religion your establishment your so to be disestablishment was to practice a form of christianity that was not endorsed by the state yeah um, Pentecostalism drank deeply from that nonconformist disestablishment DNA. And part of that DNA is a suspicion of all forms of state-endorsed religion. And it's also a suspicion of all kinds of formalized right. religion right. that smacks too much of state-endorsed. They want right. you to pray this prayer. They want you, they're telling you what to do. And right. they're, they're, evacuating the life of it all um so what we have to overcome in pentecostalism is that right concern that ritual can become so formulaic that we're back into this mechanistic approach right we, we certainly that's i think important for us to remember that that that's central to a pentecostal critique at the same time reciting prayers that are written down doesn't have to be devoid of the spiritual life. In yeah. fact, they can focus the mind in ways that lengthen your prayer and deepen your prayer to get an image of Jesus. Right. I mean, if you look at early Pentecostals, Jesus is all over the place. So to live in your mind with an image of Jesus is a way of deepening. So we have to help Pentecostals overcome a suspicion of these more formalistic sides of Christianity 
that medieval Christians, early Christians, it was just the air they breathed. Right. Right. And I appreciate you, Dale, because you are trying to help Pentecostals overcome that. Whereas I was the person who was just like, eh, all right, I'm just going to go to an Anglican tradition. Right. <laughs> I'm just going to go that way. <laughs> so you can keep working on the inside and I'm just going to, you know, I'll vacate. Um, right. Dale, this has been, I think, really helpful, uh, kind of a joiner on mysticism, on on maybe why Pentecostals are nonconformists or another way of saying it nowadays just weird and you know I'm, it's still me right like i still am it's like making fun of your own family you can do it as long as it's your family right sure, sure. um but i think it's been really helpful i think in all these ways right and, and while i think what you've talked about has brought up a lot more questions right thinking about spirit baptism thinking about some of these other terms that are second nature to pentecostals even if we haven't described them very well and we're getting better mm. at it um that are going to be hopefully future topics of the podcast now because you're reminding me, hey, these are things we need to talk about, right? So thank you so much for everything today, for our conversation. Before I let you go, I know you mentioned a couple of texts, but any way that people, that my listeners can keep up with you, your work, what's coming out, or any suggestions you might have for them. I mean, we already talked about Costello's book, but that's not your book. So anything <laughs> that you've got, uh, a little self-serving time. Yeah, well, you know, I have written a book, a popular book on holiness that has been out for a while that you can get through Amazon. Um, if you do a, if you go, if you go on Amazon, look at my name, I have an Amazon authors page and it lists that. Um, it also gives you connections to these English translations of texts that you can, if you're interested in reading more about uh, the mystical tradition, uh, the first place I would say is this volume that's just coming out on um, on uh, contemplation and symbolism and all of that, that I'm co-edited. That's a, that's a good place to start with the yeah. Andrew St. Victor. Um, so, I mean, that's one way of, of uh, keeping up with what I've written. Um, there are a couple of places that I write, contribute to regularly. One is First Things hmm. and the other is Firebrand Magazine. So if Firebrand is my Wesleyan side. First things is Catholic driven. So I kind of do the, I'm a Wesleyan sort of Pentecostal evangelical um, speaking to Catholics and others in the huh, first yeah. things venue. Um, so those are at least two places. Uh, and then the other final thing I'll say is my oldest daughter, um, well, my oldest kid, she's, she's my daughter, but she's 20. She's working on a website for me. So I'm going to have a website coming out in the next month or two, maybe in the next month. Um, and that would be the place to go. And it'll be dalemcoulter.com. So, um, well, that's perfect because by the time it. I release this, it should be live. Right. So, uh, so that'll be the go-to place for all things <laughs> Dale Coulter related. <laughs> perfect. I will be, I'll be first among those checking it out. Um, Dale, thank you so much again for this. I appreciate taking the time. It's been a wonderful conversation, and hopefully we'll chat again soon. That sounds great. Thanks for having me here.